0: Some of you have probably noticed that the Bible begins and ends with God and man in perfect communion in something that sounds like a garden paradise. Now in between these two bookends, in between the very beginning of the Bible and the very end of the Bible, there's this temple theme. And as we read through the Old Testament and we read about the tabernacle and the temple, I'm going to, keep, I'm going to use the word temple mostly, but the tabernacle gave us the same idea. We, we find these descriptions and what it does is it helps us to, to understand how to read what came before the tabernacle and the temple in the Garden of Eden, but also what will come in the future. And these pictures, especially that of the tabernacle and the temple, establish the fact that because of sin, communion between God and men can only happen in a mediated form. In the Garden of Eden, we, we read uh, the voice of the Lord, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It seems to be implied that that was normal. That, that God would come and walk in the garden with Adam and Eve regularly. And they would spend time together. And when we read the end of the Bible, what do we see? The dwelling place of God is with man. He's with us. We will be in His physical presence and we will see God in Christ standing before us. We'll commune with Him that way that we would call that uh, unmediated or uh, immediate But in between the beginning and the end, communion with God is different. There has to be mediation because of sin. Communion with God and men can only happen in a mediated form according to God's prescriptions and only by blood sacrifice. There has to be an atonement for our sins. But even as we read about the temple, if you pay attention to the description of the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament, there's this imagery that harkens back to the garden. There was etchings and pictures of palm trees and fruits and things. It was meant to look like a garden, and also angels in in, in amidst the, the trees. It, it was a picture pointing back to help us to say, wait a second, when I, was, when I was reading about the Garden of Eden, I wasn't thinking about a temple. But then when we read about the temple, we say, wait a second, maybe I should think about the garden which was in Eden... Like a temple, and maybe even Adam himself as a, a, a type of uh, typological priest in that garden temple dwelling with God. We see that the imagery of the, the garden paradise was lost because of sin, but it will eventually be restored in the end. So, so that we put this all together. We have the garden in Eden. and then we have the new heavens and the new earth, and these are all uh, illustrated for us in terms of a garden temple, paradise, where God dwells with man. In the beginning, garden, temple, paradise. In the end, garden, temple, paradise. That's where we came from. We were cast out because of sin. That's the way we're headed back to, a garden, temple, paradise. Keep that imagery in your mind. And and never is that theme more vivid than when Christ who is God the Son, became flesh and the Bible says He tabernacled among us. It was His body was like a tabernacle and there God dwelt in that body and that body was among men. God was dwelling with men in the person of Jesus Christ. He became flesh and tabernacled among us. And he offered himself as a propitiation by his blood to reconcile God and men. So there we have in Christ Jesus, God dwelling with men, men in the presence of God, and that still mediated through blood sacrifice because of our sin. We see it fully in Christ. Jesus, speaking of his body in, in John's gospel, said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. He's talking about his body. And that's exactly what he did. Now, it's interesting, at least, that when Mary ran into Jesus in the, in, in the garden after the resurrection, think of the picture destroy this body, and in three days I'll, or this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. But she didn't mistake him for a temple builder, she mistook him for a gardener, somebody working in the garden. I, I think there's a correlation there. Christ had not only raised his body as the true temple, but he also laid the foundation and cornerstone of his church. In his resurrection, destroy this temple, his body. But what is the church referred to as? His mystical body. He's raised from the dead and begins to, we could say, officially build his church. So it makes sense that later we see the church, which is the mystical body of Christ, also referred to as the temple of the Lord. In Revelation 2 and 3, what is Christ doing? Christ, our high priest, what is he doing? He's walking in the midst of the lampstands. What is a lampstand? A lampstand was an an ornament, a fixture in the temple, in the tabernacle. Like a a good priest, he's tending to the structure of the temple, his churches. He's doing the work of a priest. And then in Revelation 21, we see what is called the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven. But that bride is described as a, a temple city. And then as you're reading, there's just sort of, as John describes it, there's this really smooth translation or transition from uh, temple city, or I should say bride, temple city, into garden paradise, a river flowed through the garden. It all comes back together in the end. It's, it's a fascinating theme. If you've, if you've never traced that out from, from beginning to end in Scripture, it's fascinating. And what it teaches us is that God's purpose is to restore his immediate dwelling with man. That's where we're going. We're going to be in the presence of God. Now, throughout the New Testament, and even still today, we're, we're not at that final stage yet. And in, in the New Testament, before we get to that glorified scene, the church is illustrated as a temple of the Lord still under construction. Uh, you, you might think of yellow caution tape or a sign that says construction zone. Right? We've seen that. There's there's work happening here. You can usually tell. It doesn't look very pretty under construction many times. There's a process. Sometimes you look at it and you say, How is this going to end up like this? Well, there's a lot of destruction happening in in uh, road work especially, a lot of destruction that has to take place before they can put it all back together into the, the final product. And when you read the New Testament, that's what you see. There, here's a church. It's a building that's being constructed, and yet we look at it, just like we read in 1 Corinthians, and we might think, this does not look very pretty. Sometimes we look at ourselves today and we say, this does not look very pretty. It doesn't look like what it's supposed to look like. It's because it's under construction. That's the picture. We're working toward that perfected state in the new heavens and the new earth, but we're not there yet. Now, Paul, having already used the metaphor of planting in a field, gardening, that's how he's described his work in the church. Remember, I planted? It's like a field. It's like he's playing a role in this gardening thing. Now he shifts his analogy to the temple analogy the same theme, garden temple. Which is it? Is it a garden or is it a temple? Yes. Or is it a church or a bride? Yes. All these themes they blend together. So he's shifting from garden planting a field to a temple. And he describes his work and the work of other preachers in the language of construction workers. They're all pitching in to aid in what God is building. And so I want to look at this paragraph that we read under under two headings. With all of that in our minds, garden, temple, construction, building, a church, a bride. The preachers and teachers are like construction workers. We're all building this thing together along with Christ. Two headings. Number one, we have a command for careful construction. And then number two, we have a warning for future evaluation. A command for careful instruction and a warning for future evaluation. On a construction site, you've got to be careful, and there's probably going to come a time when somebody has to come and inspect all the work before they give the go-ahead to enter the building. That's kind of what we see here. We have to be careful in how we construct, and there will come a day when what we've been building is analyzed. So number one, a command for careful instruction. Anybody who's ever worked on a construction site knows, no matter their trade, whether you're a, a plumber or a, a, a framer a carpenter or an electrician or a roofer, you, you, as soon as you walk on the job site, typically your more official uh, professional job sites, you recognize that somewhere, somebody has blueprints to this project that have been drawn by a an architect they put together, and everybody sort of... Uh, not Usually not at the same time, but in your mind you could imagine that everybody on the site has at some point gathered around these blueprints to figure out exactly how to go about their job. Usually at the end of the blueprint, somewhere in the back maybe, and maybe on the cover, you'll have a picture of the final product. The, the, the building itself, somebody has drawn this thing, it's a picture. And as you flip through the pages, there might be a page that says, "Here's how floor number one is going to be constructed, and here's how floor number two is going to be constructed." And you might have a, a whole page dedicated to how the walls are supposed to be built and what's going to how, the the layers, whether it's going to be uh, framing and then brick and then sheetrock or how, however they're going to do it. Various pages all set out every aspect of this project. And if if you're a plumber, then you got to find out you got to fig- find out from the the blueprints, the prescription, what you're to do. You can't just show up on a job site and say, well, I did this on the last job, and I'm just going to walk up and do the exact same thing on this job. No, the, the prescriptions are specific for every job because every job is different. The blueprints lay out the goal or the final product, but they also lay out every little piece of that project that will all come together to make the final project. Now, when our Lord said in Matthew 16, I will build my church, I think we can assume, because He's God, that He already had in His mind the final product. He already knew exactly what it was going to look like in the end. He knows the final product. And we also see in Scripture that He's given very specific and clear commands about each piece of the project that will lead to that final product. Christ knows that, but I also think there's good reason to believe that the Apostle Paul had a lot of insight into some of those th- same things, some of the, the end goal of what the church is going to look like. We know that he was taken up in visions and he saw things that he couldn't speak about. When you read Romans 9 through 11, you you realize this man knew some things about the unfolding scheme of God throughout history that nobody else knew. He knew the details of how this was going to work. He had a picture in his mind that the Lord gave him, at least partially. We know from Ephesians chapter 5 that Paul knew that Christ would in the end present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. He knew that, and a lot of that was a part of the mystery that was given to him, I think, as as that stewardship. Now based on that revelation, Paul knew his job. He knew what his duties were on the construction site. You could imagine if an electrician shows up and he says, I, you know what, I, I think I'm gonna, I'm going to do some plumbing today. Well, he doesn't have the equipment, he doesn't have the tools, he doesn't have the know-how, that's for somebody else. And the apostle Paul was similar. He knew his particular job in this construction project, and he did that job. And he also knew that others were going to come behind him. They would play their role in this project, and this is how the church would be built. Now here, the first thing that we see is that it's absolutely imperative, and Paul lays this out, it's absolutely imperative that those who come after him build on the foundation that Paul had laid and do it according to the blueprints. Now several times he's already alluded to his his work among them, and back, even back in chapter one, I, I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Then chapter two, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, etc. I came to you in weakness and in fear and trembling. In chapter three, verse two, he said, "I fed you with milk, not solid food." Last week we saw in verse 6, I planted. He's, he's been reminding them of all of the, the particular things he did in this project. we we'll look at verse 10. The beginning of verse 10, he does the same thing again. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. So once again, he's pointing back to what he had done. We could call Paul the foundation guy. The foundation guy. That was his job. That's what he did. He came and he carried out his responsibilities as he was commanded. That's what he's saying. Now, the way he words it, you might think, he doesn't, he's, he doesn't think too highly of himself, does he? Like a skilled master builder. But notice the way he puts it. According to the grace of God given to me. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul's Paul's ascribing his gifting to God. It's all according to God's grace. He's referring to the specific gifts that God had given him to carry out the particular functions that he had to carry out as an apostle. He uses this language in other places too, like Romans 12.3. He says, By the grace of God given to me, I say... He doesn't say because I am who I am and it's all because of me. He says, no, God has given me these, these gifts and these, these graces, these insights. Because of that, I'm telling you this. Later on in 1 Corinthians 15, he'll say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He always attributes his ministry to the gifts and calling of God. So he's not claiming a special virtue in himself. He's saying God We would say, gifted me, or we could also say, God graced me. This is what he's saying God graced me with a particular skill set, and that was foundation laying. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Last week he said, I planted. The metaphor there is the field. What's the first thing you do? You plant. Step number one, put the seed in the ground. Now he's saying, I laid a foundation. What's the metaphor? A building. But the point is still the same. It's the first step in the project. The first work in constructing a building. He's just pointing back to the past and saying, here's what I did. I laid a foundation. And then he goes on to say, and someone else is building upon it. Now last week he said, Apollos watered. That's the follow-up work. In a field, in a garden, put the seed in the ground, water the seed. Step one, step two. Now he says, someone else is building upon the foundation. The metaphor is construction, same idea. Step one, step two. Foundation, build on the foundation. You see, he's saying the same thing. He's just transitioning the metaphor from a garden or a field to a building. Now when he says someone else is building upon it because of the verbiage there, he's more than likely referring to the people who were teaching among them at the time of his writing. So he's writing to this whole church to help them think about what's happening in the church. You need to think this way. What's happening? You could say, a guy's talking. Right now. What's happening in this church? A guy's talking. Or you could say, uh, uh, the pastor is preaching. Or you could say, someone... Is building something is happening right now that we could liken to construction and it, it, it might be like laying block or laying brick one piece at a time P- click put the mortar click mortar click slow steady precise but the point is it's building and he wants the Corinthians to understand when somebody is teaching, those who labor among you, they are a part of a construction project. They're building. Someone is building on the foundation. And so then he gives this, whole command, this command to the whole church, but especially with the preachers in mind. Reading again in verse 10, Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Speaking of the foundation. Let each one take care how he builds on the foundation. Or we, we could say, let the preacher, let the pastor, let the teachers take care how they are building upon that foundation that I laid. Now, we've seen this word before, to take care. It, it means literally to look. But we would say something to the effect of see to it or look to it, uh, observe it diligently, watch it closely, watch carefully. This is the opposite of indifference or apathy. Oh, it doesn't matter. I don't care. It's not that. It's the opposite. I do care. It does matter. What are the details? Take care. To take care implies attention to details and thoughtfulness. The work that he's describing is not just filling a spot in the worship service. When the church gathers, it's not that, well, we have this portion of time that we've just traditionally sort of sectioned off as the time where somebody preaches. Well, somebody's got to get up there and do something, so can we find somebody to do that? It's, it's not that. Nor is it just making sure there's no awkward silence in the liturgy. Liturgy is just the, the order of your worship, the things that you do. We don't want any awkward silence, so from this time to this time, or after this and before that, somebody needs to get up there and say something, or it'll be really awkward. That's, that's not the picture here. No, this is a work that requires care and diligence because it is a part of a construction project. Everything, every hour of study and prayer, every sermon, every meeting, every conversation for the Christian minister is an exercise in building. It's a part of the building process. And there has to be a recognition of that reality on all parts. And there has to be special attention given to all of the implications. Each one must take care how he builds. The the work of the ministry is not shooting from the hip. It's not uh, something that can be hurried through quickly. It's not just acting on impulse. It's not throwing things together. It's not hearing one voice say, well, I think we ought to do this, and just running to say, well, we, we must do it quickly. No, this is building. This is construction. It takes thought. It takes diligence. It takes planning. And most of all, it takes submission to the blueprints, the prescription given by the head of the church. Let each one take care how he builds. And all of this, again, it assumes that there is some standard for the building. If you're taking care, you're, you're diligently watching and making sure that you're paying attention to the details, well, surely there's some standard somewhere that tells us what is good and what is bad? What is right? What is wrong? What is important? What is not important? Just like the blueprints in construction. There are the blueprints, there are building codes, there are things that have to be followed. There are other trades to consider. You, you, sometimes the, the, the guy framing the wall and the electrician and the plumber might have to get together and say, well, this, it says to build it like this, but if I do this first, then you're not going to be able to do this. So why don't you go ahead and do this, cut this hole here, and then I'll come in and do this, and then you'll be able to bypass this. They have to work together and consider one another. Take care how you build. And notice he he does say how. Let each one take care how he Builds. This is referencing the manner in which he builds. There is a right manner, there is a wrong manner of building, and it's the Christian minister's job to constantly make sure that his manner is the right one. Now, how can he do that? Again, he returns to the blueprints, he goes back to the Word of God. So that's the command. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. And then there's the basis for this command. Here's the reason why this care must be taken. Verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now he already said, I laid the foundation. Now he says, no one can lay another foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul laid the foundation when he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And now, in reference to those who would build upon that foundation, or those who would come with the follow-up work, steps two, three, four, five, six, seven, etc., he exhorts them to carefulness. Be careful. Pay attention to the manner in which you build on this foundation, because there's only one foundation. And the building must meet, it must work perfectly with this foundation what does this have to do with building maybe you don't know maybe you're wondering is there a relationship between building constructing upwards and the foundation well of course there is the foundation is designed with the building in mind they, they, they go together The foundation is laid in comparison with the size of the footprint of the building and the weight of the building. The foundation gives the shape and support for the rest of the building. If there's only one foundation, Jesus Christ, and that's already been laid, then there's only one way to build. So let each one take care how he builds upon it. There's only one foundation. And you must build upon that, that foundation. They they must match. In other words, if you build off of the foundation, that won't work. You pour. You let's imagine that you pour a concrete foundation. That's that's a square, and you start building, and you build a building that's a rectangle. And you say, "Well, it's no big deal. You know, the corners are hanging off a little, but it's on something." Well, that won't work. That there's no support. For those corners, those sides, it'll, it'll crumble. Anything that's not supported by the foundation will eventually fall. The foundation here is Jesus Christ. Anything not built on Jesus Christ will fall. It will collapse. It cannot stand or cannot hold itself up. Now what does he mean when he says that Jesus Christ is the foundation? What does that mean? It means that the whole person and work of Jesus Christ is the bedrock and support which upholds the church. His person and His work, who He is and what He's done, holds up the church. As to His person, Jesus Himself said in Matthew 16, "'But who do you say that I am?' Simon Peter replied, "'You are the Christ, the Son of the living God.'" And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church on this rock. There's a lot of debate on what the rock is. I think it's pretty clear. The rock is not Peter himself, but the confession that Peter just made, or we could say the substance of Peter's confession regarding who Christ is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the mediator who reconciles God to men. That's who He is. There's no church outside of who He is. But then also according to His work, Paul's already said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's a summary of the work of Christ. Crucified. In His death, our sins were atoned for. Enmity between God and man is destroyed. The church becomes a blood-bought people. As Paul says in Ephesians, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now all this was prophesied. I said earlier, if you pay attention to this theme throughout the Scripture, it's incredible. In Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, God says, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And we know from the New Testament that's a reference to Jesus Christ. Christ is the proper support for the church. Christ gives it its form and its strength. Christ upholds the whole. Without the person and work of Christ, there would be no church. There would be no preaching. There would be no Christianity. It's all built specifically on who He is and what He's done. And Paul's saying here, Jesus Christ being the only foundation and there being no possibility of another foundation, then anyone who labors in Christ's church must build on that foundation. So there's the command for careful instruction, but he goes even further. It's not just building on that foundation any old way. It also takes into account how you build. The manner in which you build on that foundation. And that leads to the next point. A warning of future evaluation. A warning of future evaluation. We have this command, let each one take care how he builds upon it. Well, why? Why does it matter? Well, he's going to point here, or point out here, there's going to come a day when your work is going to be tested. There's going to be an evaluation. Paul has already made clear, as we saw last Lord's Day, That because God owns the laborers and God owns the field and God owns the harvest that every one of us are going to give an account to God for our labor. Each and every one of God's servants will give an account for themselves before God. In verse 8 he had said each one will receive his wages according to his labor. Well that assumes a day is going to come and an evaluation made about the labor. Who are you? What was given to you? What did you do? How does it meet the standard? Here are your wages according to your labor. Now, he's he's describing that day. He's taking it a little bit further, that, that reality. And he's warning the Corinthians and their teachers of what they can expect. Again, all of this is just to strengthen that command. Let each one take care how he builds. Why? Because there's going to come a day of evaluation. Now, he continues the... Analogy of the construction project. He relates the manner of building to different materials that somebody might use. Look at verse 12. He says, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation... Notice that the foundation is there. He's building on it. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become manifest. Again, the the builder here is, it's almost assumed he's building on the foundation because there is no other. Now the question is, what materials are you using to build on that foundation? Because some materials are better suited for the project than others. Gold, silver, precious stones, these are things that are, Uh, not only beautiful and ornamental and costly, but oftentimes they're strong. Wood, hay, straw. uh, Sometimes we would say wood is strong, but when you see all these things together, the picture is that they're not ornamental, they're not strong, they're not pretty, they're not going to, as we'll see in a minute, they're not going to last through the fire. It's just comparing the the types of uh, materials one might use. Now imagine... How bad it would be if you wanted to build a building, and somebody's—you've probably seen these buildings that where they they use a a textured type of block. So it's not just plain cinder block like we have, but a, a textured decorative block. And very often you'll see uh, several layers, and then part of the way up they'll use a different color block laid a different way, wrapped around so that you see a line around the building that's just gives the gives it a little bit of creativity and life, and and it looks. Aesthetically pleasing. Now imagine somebody wants to build a building like that. And they begin, they lay three rows of block, mortar in between each block, each layer. And then for the fourth layer, they sprinkle some hay on top of that. And then they put another layer of block. One, two, three. And then a little bit more hay. One, so so that every fourth layer is a layer of just hay. Now, the blocks are pretty strong. The hay's not going to be very strong. That building is going to look ridiculous. That's not going to be a strong building. It's not going to pass the code. It's it's not safe at all. Don't go near that building or that wall. It's going to fall very soon. Even if the building was on the foundation, it wouldn't be very strong. Well, in the context of Paul's ministry to the Corinthians, it's likely that gold, silver, precious stones, that would be analogous to the truth of God's Word. And the wood, hay, and straw, that would be analogous to worldly human wisdom. And here's the point. First, they don't mix you don't mix these two. You don't take the truth of God's Word and mix it with a little bit of worldly wisdom. You'll might can you you're, you'll be building, and it might even look like you're building on the right foundation, but what you're building is not strong. But also, I think the main point is that every minister in Christ's church is charged to build only upon the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, and he is to build using only the truth of God's Word only no mixture no worldly wisdom no human insight no human invention god's word as i've said many times and and will continue to say i think it's helpful for us to remember as christians when it comes to our lives and when it comes to the church we have a book we have a book we have the blueprints we have instructions there's no reason for us to depart because we have god's word now the reality is that many times there is this very poor building of people who have the office of a pastor, preacher, teacher, whatever. They mix in a little bit of worldly wisdom with what they're teaching. They Christianize it. It sounds like it's built on the right foundation. They use the name of Jesus or Christ or maybe even the, the gospel details of the cross and the resurrection. But they'll mix a little bit of worldly wisdom into some application of it here or there. And it might pass as Christianity. It might pass as true biblical teaching. And many times it might seem like the teaching is doing a great deal of good. Well, we got three layers of block. Only one layer of straw. Three layers of block. It's 12 feet tall. We're, it's, we're building up here. Yeah, but this, this layer of straw right here, that's not going to work. It's gonna. It messes the whole thing up, you see. It might appear to be a good building, but because it has this mixture of worldly wisdom in it, it will not stand the test. It, it, it's no good. And that's why he reminds them here, even though it might seem like it's doing a lot of good, each one's work will become manifest. It might look great now. Someday we'll see it for what it is. We'll see it fully. The truth will come out. And notice the time frame that he gives verse 13 for the day will disclose it that is the day of judgment the final day on the day of judgment every minister's work will be manifested in plain sight it doesn't matter Ultimately, what we, how we think it looks now. How we feel that it looks now. On that day, there will be no feeling. There will be no pontificating about what it may or may not have been. It will be clear, plain as day. And it will be known whether He had built with the truth or with human wisdom. He says it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. We know that fire throughout the Scripture is something that purges and cleanses away impurities and dross. Fire would consume wood and hay and straw. Fire would even consume little bits of, of those types of things that might have been mixed in mixed into some of the precious stones. It burns away everything that is impure, leaving only the perfect. The Day of Judgment will be a day of revelation and manifestation of the work of every servant of the Lord. Now he goes on in verses 14 and 15 to lay out essentially two possible outcomes. There are works that endure. The building which was built on the foundation, which was made out of gold and silver and precious stone, again, more than likely, the enduring truth of the word of god that building he says if that work if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward he's built on the only foundation using the eternally pure truth of the word of god the fires come that work remains and after the fire of purification blows through the building still stands that kind of labor he says he will receive a reward, just like we saw in verse 8. But there are also works that do not endure. This is the building that would have been made out of wood and hay and straw. Every weak and beggarly element of this temporal world, the imaginations and wisdom and philosophies of men, that kind of stuff. He says if anyone's work is burned up, that will be that kind of stuff. The fire comes through and vaporizes all of that worthless, worthless material says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, he will be saved. It's assuming this is a true believer here. He's just built with a lot of uh, non-eternal, temporal things, worldly philosophies. He himself, he himself will be saved, but only as through Fire. We might say uh, he, he will be saved, but uh, it'll be like he was saved by the skin of his teeth. Like he was just barely snatched out of hell because all of his labors were so worthless. He, he just barely made it out as through fire. Like he was rescued out of a burning building at the last minute. And I would say that if that idea seems okay to you, well, at least I go to heaven. Probably not a Christian. A Christian person doesn't say, well, I just if I can get through by the skin of my teeth, that's all Christ is worthy of to me. I just want to make sure that I don't go to hell. That's not the way a Christian thinks. A Christian says Christ is worthy of me striving after and building the the greatest and the most eternally valuable thing that I can. But that's what he says. He will be saved but only as through fire. Now, let's put all this together and summarize the main point. Let each one take care how he builds upon the foundation. Christ is the only foundation. He's already been laid. The building refers to the labors of those who preach and teach God's Word. The the fiery day of judgment will test and make known the value of what each one has done. Work that proves eternally valuable will be rewarded. It will endure. Work that proves worthless will be burned up. What can we learn from this? Here it is. In short, there is coming a day when the works of men will be evaluated on the basis of the relationship they bear, they being the works, the relationship the works bear to Jesus Christ. There is coming a day when the works of men will be evaluated on the basis of the relationship that they bear to Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who becomes the great touchstone of all true value. Touchstone. A touchstone was a a piece of a certain kind of rock that you could bring another supposedly precious kind of rock like gold to. You take that gold and you scrape it across the touchstone. And whatever color was left on the touchstone, that would show you the, the value of that gold, whether it was a very high quality or poor quality, based on the color it left On the touchstone. It it was basically the the, the standard by which a thing was to be judged. What we're seeing here is Jesus Christ is the touchstone. He's the standard. He's the measuring rod. All of our works are going to be brought to the judgment. And as it were, scraped across Christ, compared with Him, laid beside Him, His person and His work and His commission for us and the relationship they bear to Him, that will be the standard by which they're judged. In Acts 17, we learn that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man. By a man. And that man is the one that is raised from the dead, the man Christ Jesus. All the world will be gathered before the throne of a man the man Christ Jesus. And each one will give an account of himself to that man and of his works in relationship to that man. For the Christian, all of our works will be evaluated according to the relationship they bear to Christ. Our works. We we could say, if you want to use the language of a cornerstone or or something of that nature our works will be laid out and the chalk line will be pulled and snapped whatever is in in perfect alignment with christ that endures whatever is off the line to the left or to the right will be burned up we will find out all of that was absolutely useless everything off of that line useless christ is the judge of our works Now this obviously applies specifically to to the minister, the preacher, the teacher, the pastor. That's who he has in mind. The entirety of the Christian ministry is to be built upon Jesus Christ. Christ must be the starting point and the ending point of all biblical studies and preaching. Spurgeon famously said, "No, No Christ in your sermon, sir? Well, go home and never preach again until you can figure out how to get Christ in there. You start with Him, you end with Him. He must be the substance of it. That's where we, where we begin. How does this topic, this subject, relate to the person and work of Christ? Every glorious attribute of God that we might teach, we say, and it finds its fullest manifestation in Jesus Christ. Every sinful act of men, when we preach about sins, we say, you've sinned against Jesus Christ. The only way of reconciliation between God and men is through the work of Jesus Christ. Christ. The inculcation of every duty. That is, if I stand here and I say the Word of God says you must do this. I just inculcated. I, I pushed you towards that duty. The inculcation of every duty must flow from the grace of Christ. If I say here's what you must do and you've got it within you to do it. Now try really hard and you'll, you'll do it. Well, that's not Christian preaching. I would have to take a step back and say the only way you can do it is through the grace of Christ working in you. The acknowledgement of every failure and sin must result in our turning men's eyes to Jesus Christ. He is the foundation and we build upon Him. As for the Christian minister, the pattern for his thinking is to be the mind of Christ found in the Scriptures. His daily habits are to be adopted based on the habits of the man, Christ Jesus. Well, does the Bible say you have to do this or that? Well, no, not necessarily, but Jesus did it and I want to be as much like Him as I can. So that's what we do. We make Him our pattern. His personal carriage in the world is to be moderned after Christ. His dealings with men are to be imitations of Christ. This is why the Gospels are so important to us. That's where we see the man Christ Jesus living and interacting and dealing with people. And that's to be the pattern. When the Christian minister exhorts the saints to seek after growth in grace, he reminds his hearers that grace is found only in Christ. But it's available to us through a covenant that has been sealed in the blood of Christ. When trying to help the saints toward a full assurance of salvation, The Christian minister points them to justification based on the imputation of Christ's righteousness, not your own, but also fruits that would be born by the Spirit of Christ in you. When reminding the saints of the unchangeableness of their salvation, he points them to their union with Jesus Christ by the Spirit. When bolstering up the confidence of the saints in their daily lives, he points them to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who's been given the authority to break open the seals and open the scroll of God's providence, knowing that Christ is working all things for the good of His people. When teaching the people of God of their duties in the world, His job is to teach them all things whatsoever Christ commanded and to assure them that Christ will be with them to the end of the age. For the Christian minister, everything in his life studies, and ministry is to be according to the example of Christ, by the strength of Christ, for the people of Christ, in order to purify the bride of Christ, for the glory of Christ, and the promotion of the cause and kingdom of Christ in the earth. One foundation, one way of building, all centered around Jesus Christ. And only the work that falls in in line with all of that will endure on the final day. Everything else is worthless but there's also a sense in which each and every saint we could say is is participating in this building every christian has the responsibility to imbibe and adopt and apply this same principle of building upon christ according to the truth in every area of their lives you you hear the preaching and you have to almost take it and and Preach it and apply it by your own mind to yourself. When you hear of the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, you must believe in Him. I can't believe for you. You must believe in Him. And that's not just a one-time event, but you must believe and you must keep on believing. You must grow in that faith. You must fight against unbelief. These are ways that you are, you are building your faith upon Jesus Christ. And there may be times, again, when you have to preach to yourself. You have to address your own soul and remind your own self who Christ is and what He's done and resolutely plant your feet on that foundation again. And you might catch yourself having stepped off or about to step off and you say, I can't do that. There's only one foundation. Now when it comes to the daily duties of life, Every single act, everything that you do, you will be found to be either like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand or the wise man who built his house upon the rock. What was the building on the rock? It was hearing and doing the Word of God. He did what God said. The building of the, the, the quote, house of your life will either be in obedience to the commands of Christ in submission to Him, or they will be in conformity to the ways of the world. You might, you might try to picture every thought, every word, every action, every decision, every avenue, every, every moment of your life to be a little brick. And you're building something. And the mortar that's holding these things together must be the Word of God, the truth of Scripture, you bring every, every block to the mortar and lay it in the text of Scripture and it will be strong. You build upon that. It's not subjective. It's not just, well, well, I hope this will work well or I hope this will turn out well. But you bring it to the Word of God. And that's true faith. Keeping the objective truth of God's Word, which is the Word of Christ, at the center of all of your building, everything that you do. This is important. When you read the Bible... Faith is not people saying I think this would be a good idea come on family let's let's just pack up and head towards Canaan feels feels good it feels I've always I've always wanted to be in the land of Canaan uh, it would fulfill a great dream of mine no God comes to Abram and he says you go in that direction objective truth that's faith read Hebrews 11 it's all acting, living out of the objective revelation of the Word of God. Now, why is that important? Because a lot of people today, even evangelicals, uh, act in such a way that faith is always in the subjective realm that nobody can ever nail to the wall. If they make a a really weird decision, they say, well, I'm just stepping out in faith. That's not faith. I I want to hear what, what text of Scripture have you... Have you learned from? Where did God tell you to do this? What are you using as your basis? Well, I prayed about it. Okay, you, you talked to God. That's wonderful. My children often come to me and they tell me, Hey, Dad, I'm going to do this. I say, Whoa, whoa, whoa. You need to hear me speak to you first. I've got to give you permission. You don't just tell me what you're doing. A lot of times we say, I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to go talk to God. And I, and I, I want to ask, okay, then... then Did God talk back or did you just talk to Him and then act? Right? Faith is not like that. Faith is built on the objective truth of the Word. What texts did you use to come to this conclusion and act? What is the text? It's the Word of Christ. I'm just building on what He has said. I don't want to step off of that. You say, well, if I, if I build my life off of that where I have to not only go talk to God and you pacify my conscience by praying a little bit about the things I already want to do, but I actually go to the Word of God and, and have to study it. If I do that with everything, my life is just going to become really simple, and I probably won't be nearly as busy, and I will be waiting a little longer before making very very uh, big decisions in life and and but they 'll all turn out better in the end. But but that's really what will happen. A lot of times we don't want that. We want busyness. We want activity now, 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 now. And so we we mutter up five or ten minutes of prayer and we say, there I prayed for it. I'm going to go ahead and proceed with what I already really wanted to do to begin with. That's not building upon Christ. Build your life out of gold and silver and precious stones which will endure the judgment. What does that mean? Obedience to Christ. But not to earn God's favor. A lot of times you might do the right thing, but with the wrong motive. Children, you might obey your parents. God said, obey your parents, right? You might obey your parents, but why? Well, I don't want to get punished. That's not building on Christ, that's building on self preservation. Or adults, very often we will find ourselves conforming to a general Christian ethic I'm honest, I'm upright, I'm kind to people. I drive on the right side of the road. If I see a stop sign, I stop. If I see a green light, I go. Well, why do you do that? Well, this is just the way I was raised. My parents were this way and their parents are this way and we're just this kind of people. That's not building on Christ. That's building on just pure human morality. Bring it to Christ. You don't build up to the foundation. The foundation's already been laid. Why am I doing these things? Because of Christ, of what Christ has done in me and for me. I I live this way and do these things because God's favor already rests on me because of what Christ has done. That's the foundation. If you're seeking to grow in grace, again, you pursue that grace from Christ alone. In Him is fullness of grace and grace upon grace. You say, well, I don't know if if there's really that much to offer me. (laughs) What's the foundation? Christ has already sealed the covenant. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is ours in Him. It's already yours because of what He's done. The foundation. Some find themselves struggling with assurance of their salvation. Well, I think the Bible wants us to get to a, a fuller, stronger assurance. What do we do? What, what do we typically do? I'm struggling with assurance. Okay, I'm going to settle it right now. All right, what did I do today? How did I do today? That's that's the opposite. That's that's not building on the foundation. What did Christ do? That's the first question struggling with assurance of salvation, what did Christ do? Who is He? What did He accomplish? Do I believe that there's salvation or hope outside of Him? Is He my only plea before God? And Remember and remind yourself, God spoke from heaven on multiple occasions and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Am I trusting in Him? Then God says to you, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. As if you were Christ Himself. Remind yourself again, the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. God raised Him from the dead. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Then say, Soul, how could God not save you? How could you not be saved? If Christ has done all of this, if the Father is this pleased in His Son, if He would send forth His Son and raise Him from the dead and I'm trusting in Him, how could I not be a believer? God would be unjust You build your assurance upon Christ, what Christ has done. Then you might look at some fruit. You don't say, is this tree full of abundant, full, mature fruit? You say, is there a fruit at all? Is there something little? Well, I see a little something over here. Okay, Christ did that, not you. And again, the Bible teaches these things. I didn't come up with this. Does life produce difficulties or are there trials in your experience? Well, you remind yourself, Christ is ordering all things for your good. The heavenly bridegroom just wants to make sure that his bride looks really good when he comes after her. And you're a part of that. Is it hard? He's just making his bride lovely. Build upon Christ. It's very much your your thinking and your heart as Paul says, Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus because of His death and resurrection. You've got a reckoning to do. reckoning in your mind, and your heart based on what Christ has done. It's not just living or deciding or going with the flow. Every thought, every action, every word, every practice, every habit has to be traced back to the foundation which is Christ or it's worthless. And how many of us are going to stand before the judgment and realize that maybe 30% of our lives were fruitful for the kingdom of Christ and everything else was trash because we didn't build upon Christ? You have to reckon. Reckon these things. A man named John Jennings wrote a sermon. He was addressing something similar to this. And he says, he puts it like this, if you're going to be honest, be honest because you're a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. If you're going to be sexually pure, do it because your bodies are members of Christ. If you're going to be generous to the poor, do it because Christ became poor for our sakes. Husbands, deal with your wives the way Christ deals with His church. Wives, submit to your husbands because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. If you're going to be a good employee at work, don't do it because you want to raise. Do it because you're laboring as unto the Lord. Center it on Him. And keep in mind that on the last day your actions will be evaluated according to this standard. Was it for Christ? Was that for Christ? Or was it for you? Was that for Christ? Or was it for your reputation? Was that for Christ? Or was it for money? Was that for Christ? Or was it because you just had a, a, a dream or a fancy or a, a, an aspiration to do this or that? Did you do the right thing? I did do the right thing. But you didn't do it for Christ. It burns away. Some of you have heard this well-known statement by C.T. Studd. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's the point. All of us whether preacher or hearer, will be examined. All of our works, all of our words, all of our thoughts, and the standard will be a man, the man Christ Jesus. Let us be sure that by His grace we are reckoning these things and bringing everything to that bar. I don't want the things that I've done to burn up and to be a waste, and I don't think you do either. So let's pray that God would help us.